0: You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. Lecture 16. In this final installment in our lecture series, we will look at the last portion of Chapter 3, namely the chapter that Pope John Paul II is devoted to pastoral considerations It is very directly aimed at the bishops and then at all those who have roles in teaching fundamental moral theology, let alone its applications to practical considerations. And John Paul II here, in addition to sounding forth again some of the themes that are his signature themes and that we have examined, he will also turn especially to the need to consider martyrdom and then to reflect on the way in which the church's fundamental moral theology, is intended to be at the service of the human being, the individual, but also at the service of culture and society. And so I'll make those my final points of focus. In paragraph 87 of chapter 3, John Paul II quotes John 8.32, that very famous line about the truth will set you free. He is very mindful that the truth is a condition for freedom. I mean, just think about the relation between truth and freedom for a moment, right? Freedom by itself is being unrestrained, but that's only the negative sense of freedom. The positive sense of freedom is using that freedom for something. And so enacting the truth, bringing out the genuine goodness is the goal of freedom. But there is a way in which freedom is a condition for the very possibility of truth. Namely, unless one is open to accepting the truth, One will never be in the position of ever being true or knowing the truth about anything. And so here, Pope John Paul II is focusing on the way in which the truth, the truth about our nature, makes it possible for us to be yet more free because we know what it is that will be our possibilities for action and how we can indeed do what God has intended to us. So when he quotes John 8.32, he readily quotes the line, The truth sets us free. It sets us free from any number of fears, including the fear of worldly power, the fear of pressure, and it can even give us enough strength to endure martyrdom. When one thinks of the martyrs of the early church, thinks of St. Peter, thinks of St. Paul, when one thinks of the martyrs of the Old Testament, Susanna, for instance, in the book of Daniel, and many others, they were willing to go to their death rather than to deny what they knew. Admittedly, St. Peter, we hear the story of his failing before we hear the story of his accomplishment. And this is the weakness that we must understand and assist. And yet Peter learns his lesson and will eventually be become a martyr. It is a matter that we need to take very seriously, especially as we are presently engaged in our country in questions about preserving religious liberty. I think, for instance, of the great Cardinal George of Chicago, who is said to have said something like this, namely that he, as Archbishop of Chicago, would probably die in his bed, but that his successor would probably die in prison, and that his successor, beyond that, could very well die a martyr in the public square. I think Cardinal George was being very prescient when he made those remarks about the way in which testifying to the truth, the truth about Christian morality, may well make us hated, We need to find ways to make the truth indeed attractive so that many will accept it and we will again work at the rebuilding of our culture. But in the meanwhile, there may well be the need for giving witness. Pope John Paul II makes that giving of witness, which is the root of the word martyrdom, the central point of the last section, the last major section in chapter three. He is focusing on the way in which our Lord Jesus, who is there dying for us, And witness to his Father's love for us, he shows us the real freedom that can be acquired by love. When we make, for instance, the commitment of marriage, we are indeed binding ourselves so that we won't go seeking anyone else besides our spouse, but we are now truly free to give ourselves and to receive from our spouse in ways that would not be possible without that particular commitment. I find that the same is true in the priesthood and religious life. Without the vows that I have taken, I think it would be very difficult to do the thing that I do day in and day out in the way that I try to give myself, and I think that many religious find the same. The point of our lives is to give them away, and that service of God and that service of neighbor, really becoming a servant of real freedom and of truth, is the purpose, is this royal gift. It's in paragraph 87 that John Paul II uses that word munus that I was talking about in the last lecture, namely this great royal gift, the office that we have of being the stewards of freedom in the service of truth. Jesus shows us, of course, the example of how to do this. For he is, in his own very person, showing to his apostles what perfect freedom means, in his total obedience to the Father and his willingness to give his gift. So what should we do about it? Paragraph 88 is entitled, Walking in the Light, and Pope John Paul II quotes from the first letter of John, chapter 1, verse 7. Walking in the light, the light that Christ shines upon human nature and upon our human existence, shows us what it means to grow in this responsible sense of freedom rather than in some disordered sense of freedom as mere license. It is a matter of setting freedom in connection to truth, and not trying to set freedom at opposition to truth. If there is a common theme throughout all four of the errors that John Paul II was trying to discuss and identify and warn us about, it is that they try to oppose really, to really oppose freedom and truth. And his own insistence is that they must be tightly connected. In fact, for his own way of seeing things, The effort to connect freedom and truth often involves seeing the connection between faith and morals. He noticed anywhere, any number of times along the way, individuals who are dissenting from Catholic moral theology, from its traditional positions, by trying to suggest that faith is a separate thing from the truth about morality. In fact, he sees them in a hermeneutics of continuity. He sees them as tightly tied together and that we will only have a proper understanding of freedom and truth when we understand what faith has to say about morality. In doing so, he is aware of the fact that we are going against the grain in our culture. In the course of chapter 3, he mentions to his fellow bishops any number of the trends that they can see on the ground in their own diocese about the de-Christianization of Christian culture. There is a growing secularism, and we face that, In every land, we know it the way we face it here in our own culture. It's a culture which, even if it isn't openly atheist, sometimes it's that, is at least very practically atheist, acting as if God doesn't exist. Or perhaps by a curious compartmentalization of the mind, God is for Sundays. The rest of the week we do something else. But that compartmentalization of the mind is a practical atheism. That is, it's suggesting that God doesn't really have any connection with our normal world, with the orders of of technical reasoning, the order of calculation. It is a sign of this de-Christianization of the culture. And that part of what I think we need to work at is indeed letting religion again come and form and transform culture. I'm a great student and great lover of the works of Christopher Dawson. If you've never had the chance to read him, I hope that you will. And in all of Dawson's writings about various cultures around the world, not just Christianity, he is frequently showing how religion is what forms and transforms culture. He's against the grain of much thinking in sociology and in some quarters of history to think that religion is something that a culture spins off, that religion is simply something that a culture produces. in fact it's the reverse. But we need to find the ways to do that in person. It is my personal hope that this is what the project, the papal project of Pope Francis is, and in works like Evangelii Gaudium, that what he's attempting to do is to try to show how, by missionary efforts, to re-evangelize. And in that he is, Francis is in profound union with John Paul II and with Benedict XVI in thinking about ways in which the new evangelization has to work. Faith John Paul II reminds us, is not just a set of propositions, that even though we can indeed and we must honor the propositions that record the faith, for instance, the lines in the Creed and the other things that are known in the ways in which theologians are inclined to say them in a technical and precise format, but that faith is not just a set of propositions to be accepted by the intellect. Faith is a lived knowledge of God and a lived knowledge of how God sees us as human beings, made in his image and likeness. Faith is a loving remembrance of standing within the covenant, and according to the covenant, being bound by the commandments, old and new, and doing so and honoring them, because one understands that they are a set of guidance provided by a loving God, who has, indeed, our concern for us, and is ready to make such covenants to give us such a holy law so that we will indeed be freely able, by our embrace of them, to return to Him. Part of what John Paul II is urging his bishops, paragraph 89 especially, is that faith has a moral content. Sometimes one gets the impression, by the way in which the faith is taught, that faith is about God things, about the Trinity, about prayer, and that. Moral living is something else, a matter of our own reason. I think we see this in the current debates about religious liberty, when at least some people in power and positions of authority within our culture will grant the opportunity to give worship in the sense of liturgy, in the sense of gathering for worship. But they don't see the implications for moral life or for social life. That is, they expect if we give you this opportunity to worship on Sunday, then you will pay the piper and you will live your life according to our best insights the rest of the days of the week. Christians cannot accept this, nor do I think anyone should. We think our understanding of what the gospel requires for true worship is not only the first tablet, the commandments which talk to us about how to live in worship, but also the second tablet, the tablet that talks to us about what we must never do because we would offend against human dignity, and what we must do, the works of social charity, running hospitals and orphanages, social service systems and systems of education, we see those social implications as an intrinsic part of our religion. They are not merely some extra thing. They are an intrinsic demand of the faith, because faith has an intrinsically moral and social component. Holding to these positions, as Cardinal George warned us, may well require martyrdom. They may well require giving witness, even when those who are in positions of power and authority do not like it. But this is why we look upon the face of Jesus on the cross and crucified, one who was willing to give that unconditional respect and obedience to his Father as the pattern for what any other martyr will be, whether it be the martyrs of the Old Testament, the New, or the New, or the martyrs in the course of the history of the Church. Our way to holiness passes through the lines of morality, and so learning this morality is to learn God's will for us and God's law, not only as taught in the Decalogue and the two commandments of Christ, but also as taught in the natural law that God has placed within us for us to see. How should the Church do this? In paragraph 95, Pope John Paul II turns to the style in which the church should do it, and in particular he reminds us of the way in which the church must be a mother. When we think of what spiritual motherhood is, it is a matter of being like natural motherhood, of being tender and kindly, a source always of support, but also a mother who will help instruct her children and give them the security, give them the strength give them the love and support that lets them know they have the strength within them to carry out the tasks that they must do. This is the way in which the church has a certain spiritual motherhood. It is a matter of teaching her children and assisting her children to render the obedience. It's not a matter of being authoritarian. In fact, those who accuse the church of intransigence about some moral precepts, those who think that the church is simply unwilling to change, unwilling to accept new information, they misunderstand because they think that these commandments emerge from some decision by human beings within the church. Rather, the churches stand on any of these unpopular issues, whether it be a stand that there is something deeply wrong with contraception, whether it be a stand that there is something deeply wrong with abortion or infanticide whether there is something wrong with remarriage after divorce, whether there is something wrong, one could go down the list, all those things when the church teaches them, the church teaches them not as something she made up. It is not a matter of human devising. It is a matter of our human understanding of what it is that is God's law. And so the kind of love that the bishops must exhibit, according to John Paul, I'm here again, a round paragraph, Um, 94, 95, 96, is that the church's compassionate love, like a mother, will be the compassion and sometimes the tough love. As you know in the very expression, tough love, sometimes a parent needs to let a child see the consequences for himself, for herself. It would be a false compassion to eliminate and deny the sad consequences of immoral activity. And so that part of what one must understand is that it is a false compassion to pretend that these laws do not apply. The reason that they apply is that they are coming from our Maker and that they are about the very nature that we have and about what will enhance our freedom and allow us to live according to the dignity by which we are made, but rather trying to subvert them trying to get around them, would be a kind of a false compassion, failing to deal with us as our human nature really is. Hence the Church, and John Paul II, advising the bishops, urges that they must find the way to explain even the most difficult of the requirements of Christian morality, never bucking them, never pretending they don't exist, never failing to talk about them, but finding the ways to talk about them that will help people to understand, help people to see, help help people to embrace. It's fascinating to me, as I lecture here and there, as I deal with our Fordham students and others with whom I talk regularly, how many people found themselves inspired by the theology of the body, found themselves inspired very much by the great vision of John Paul II, I don't think that he's teaching us new things there. I think he's giving us a new way to teach old things, a new way to teach things whose oldness is eternal, because they are indeed God's plan for how the human being was made in a body and how the body by itself, the body of man and the body of woman, are truly complementary so that marriage accentuates and makes use of that complementarity in order to make possible the free response, male and female, masculine and feminine, to what it is that God wants in the union of married spouses, the union of matrimony, and the way in which this can lead people to the happiness of heaven. He is very mindful that we need to be tolerant in society, and yet need, in the avoiding of any kind of intolerance, need to be marked not by passivity, but marked by a real, vigorous act of charity. He sums all this up in paragraph 96 by suggesting that the church's moral theology is a matter of being at the service of humanity, at the service of human dignity for everyone. For the church's moral teaching applies not just to Catholics, not just to Christians, but is said in a way that is at the service of the human dignity of everyone. I find it interesting, of course, when talking with converts, Sometimes it's the strength of the church's moral teaching that is actually the reason for the conversion. They found no other institution making comparable truths and comparable assertions, especially in the face of so much secular pressure, pressure from the media, pressure from public opinion. And it is by the courageous witness that the church is given to the truths about humankind in general, about every single human being and about the very purpose of our existence here that has been the source of attraction and that led to the grace of conversion. In paragraph 97 and what follows, John Paul II turns to the way in which the moral theology, and especially the fundamental moral theology of the church, is intended to be at the service of the renewal of society and the renewal of culture. He doesn't here undertake a a thoroughgoing account of Catholic social teaching, but he adverts to it in many, many ways. Let's think about Catholic social teaching for just a minute. I've adverted to it occasionally in earlier lectures. It's been going on from the beginning, from the time of the Gospels. It took on a new prominence, of course, in the modern period, with the end of juridical Christendom in the course of the 19th century. When Leo XIII began the use of the encyclical form, beginning with those political encyclicals that were early on, and then Rerum Novarum in 1891, and every other pope since then, some in a greater proportion to the time they had available. Benedict XV, for instance, was busy bringing the charity of the Church to the situation of the First World War. He didn't contribute significant encyclicals to this pattern, but he showed it in practice. But others, John XXIII, for instance, with Mater et Magistra, Paul VI with Populorum Progressio or Octavania, um, Octogesima Advanians. John Paul II in a strong way with his three social encyclicals. Pope Benedict in all three, but especially in the first and the third, Deus Caritas Est and then Caritas in Veritate. What all of those popes have been doing is to articulate principles of Catholic social teaching that stem directly from these fundamental principles of moral theology that we have been considering here. Things like the right to private property that Leo Thirteenth discussed in Rerum Novarum, and then the ways in which Pope um, Pius XI in Quadragesimo Uno develops some of those thought about private property. The way in which all, all of the early popes in this tradition, going up, say, to John Twenty-Third, they have a wonderful sense that human rights are important, but that rights flow from duties. Just to take that example of private property, they defend the right of private property, but not as an abstract right, not as in the way that someone like John Locke would do it, by thinking that it's one of the natural rights, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of property, as though that were the foundation stone. Remember that when John Locke articulates his theory of natural rights, he does it in a most curious way, replacing the story of Genesis with his own myth about the state of nature. Instead, when the popes deal with the right of private property, any of them, Leo XIII, Pius XI, John the 23rd they do it always in saying that private property is a right that we have to certain kinds of things that we've labored for or have received as inheritance. But the reason why there is a right is not the abstract right as if it were simply an A natural right that we have at the start, we have rights like private property or liberty or even life because of the duties that we have. We have the right to private property because we have duties to take care of our family and our dependents and even our neighbors. Because we have those duties, we therefore have rights. We have, for instance, the right of liberty of speech because we have the duty to know the truth. We have the right to religious liberty because we have duties to honor God and to worship Him and to carry out His will even in giving the structure to societies and to refreshing and renewing and restoring the structures of society so that human dignity will really be honored. For all these popes, in articulating Catholic social teaching, they no longer do so from the positions of juridical power in the way that they did for centuries. Now, Within secular society, the church, as John Twenty-third said it, is mother and teacher. Teacher of moral principles so that people will know what their obligations are under divine law and obligations are under natural law, and that civil society will give them the rights that they need under law as civil rights in order to do that which their moral duty already requires them as beings that have a dignity that has been given them by God that they must respect and that they must respect in others so that they will carry this dignity unto the joys of being with God perpetually in heaven. Interestingly, when the popes in their Catholic social teaching start talking about these principles, it is absolutely fascinating to me that they always do it as paired principles. For instance, that right to private property that we were just discussing is always paired with what the popes call, by a very interesting phrase, the universal destination of the goods of this earth. That is, there is a sense in which the goods that are here, the food, the land, the air, the water, are intended for the whole human race. They may be privately appropriated so that we can do our duties by our family, by our neighborhood, by our community, by our state. And yet, they must be used in such a way that they are also able to be used by others who need them to do their duties. The papacy is not for a set of abstract rights. The papacy rather embraces the language of rights, but always in the interplay of rights and duties. And so when we began this lecture series, back in Lecture 1 with a consideration of what the foundation of rights are, what we said and what we still say is that the foundation of rights comes from the nature that we have in common. And the nature that we have in common is a nature that is already built with a law within it by God that shows us how to protect and how to respect the dignity that comes from being made in the image and likeness of God, to respect it in ourselves and to respect it in others who have it. Catholic social teaching, that kind that is suggested here by paragraphs 96 and 97 and 98, is offered by the effort to renew our communities and our societies so that they will better, in their civil legislation and in their arrangement of the temporal affairs of this earth, make an arrangement and a social order in which people can have and can enjoy and can respect human dignity and the God who has provided that dignity. It is no surprise to find John Paul II commenting on politics. For instance, in paragraph 101, He is commenting, as any good pope must do in Catholic social teaching, not only on the economic, not only on the family, but also on the political. And in paragraph 101, there's a very interesting comment. He comments to his fellow bishops, we can see great promise in democratic cultures. We are willing to embrace working on the social order in light of the fundamental moral theology that we have within democratic societies. But be careful, be aware, that there is an, a tremendous danger and indeed an increasing tendency in democratic culture to associate itself with pure relativism. In many democratic cultures, operating as they do my majority rule, certain human dignity gets trampled upon. Right now in our culture we still fight the battle of abortion and we have to fight other battles associated with. the declining ability of a person to defend herself or himself. In having still a permission for abortion in our culture, in finding increasing pressure for euthanasia, there is in this pressure the inclination in these given societies that majority rule should prevail. And what the Pope has to warn is that democracy must be educated. People in democratic cultures must hear the principles of morality so that they will not violate them and think that they are justified in doing so by democratic procedures. We also currently have to fight the battles against same-sex marriage, remembering what the real nature of matrimony is and how real marriage is between one man and one woman. And in so doing, as we try to make our case in a reasonable way in the public forum, partly what we must do is to rely upon the witness of revelation and of Christian culture, especially dependent on God and God's law, we must also try to make the case in ways that are philosophically reasonable and understandable within the rhetoric and the domain and the exercise of democracy within our culture. There is an inclination on some people's part to say that this is simply an inevitable movement, although I think it interesting that same-sex marriage has generally not proceeded by majority vote, but by rather the court overturning various pieces of legislation that are already enacted. It is not a very democratic movement, but rather a highly elitist movement that is preceded proceeded by judicial review. What we must do is to find a voice in the public sphere that is reasonable, one that is in no way intolerant, one that is respectful of people that disagree with us. And yet, in finding that respectful voice, and ways that we can indeed talk about these issues, we must talk about them in ways, even with our opponents, that respects the dignity of our opponents. It would be contradictory to our position to think that there is anything other than human dignity to be found, even in someone with whom we disagree on the most important and in most severe ways. Nonetheless, we must find the way to speak. And what Pope John Paul II is urging is is that the religious liberty that we require And the other liberties that we expect in democratic culture will insist that we be participants. One isn't really enjoying religious liberty or the liberty of freedom and the other political liberties that we enjoy in democratic cultures, unless one participates. And yet to participate, we must find the voice and be reasonable and show forth the truth, both by shining the light of Christ upon it and shining the light of reason in ways that the natural law makes possible. Before he finishes, John Paul II turns to our desperate need for grace. That's in paragraph 102. Our need to contribute to the new evangelization, the way in which we will reawaken our culture to the truths of the gospel. And finally, to the important role that prayer has. He urges, especially as he talks to the bishops in paragraph 110, their responsibility to be teachers and those who will lead prayer. And then at the end of the encyclical, he turns to Blessed Mother, and he makes the final portion of his encyclical, as he do often did with other encyclicals, prayer to the Lord through Mary, for his own motto, totus tuus, everything is yours, and with that large M that was on his shield, ever devoting himself to Blessed Mother, asking for her maternal protection, and so asking for her maternal protection upon moral theologians. As we conclude this lecture series, we're mindful of the many insights John Paul II has. We are so gratified that he has now been raised to the status of being a saint, and so we pray here at the end, St. John Paul the Great, pray for us. We thank you for what you have given us, and we need your continued assistance from heaven. Thanks for being with me in this lecture series. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.